Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along through our encroaching apocalypse are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? I'm well. I'm good. I have only had to deal with several, only a couple of stats emergencies this week. I spent a week not working. Oh my god. I know. It's I, weird. Who, What's who worse are you is it was near what a. What you do to Jude? Well, to to make it even weirder, it was near a beach, which is very far outside of my comfort zone. Uh, but, but the my sun kid had burns a good time. us. Yes, it did. I I got a burn on the top of my head, and uh, let me tell you, if you have ever gotten a sunburn on your scalp. Uh, that shit sucks. But thankfully, it's a great excuse to avoid all further exposure to the sun for the rest of the trip because I got it on the first day. So thumbs up. This probably won't ever see the light of day, but we got shared. I got shared in one of my private chats at Jude a picture of Jude on a beach. And <laughs> it is, it's like it's both the most Jude picture and the most funny picture I've seen of him ever. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's very uh, it's very me. Um me in a played hat or a, a tweed hat. Wait, played. Glowering. Wait, wait, no, we have to go Not back played. to this. It's tweed. It's a tweed hat. What? What glowering. did you call it before? Played. Yeah, I know. I say it wrong. I learned. <laughs> I, I I learned it from a book when I was like five, and I never learned. I never got used to saying it the the, the other way. So the correct way, you mean? Fuck yeah. you. I. English is mine, and I'll do what I want with it, all right? <laughs> it's not like one of those things where it's like, oh, there's a regional thing. Played is like a different word. I have my own interpretation of English, thank you very much, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it the way I want to. All right, I have a question for y'all tonight. Let's hear it. What is your preferred method of planetary annihilation? Oh, good question. This could be from any form of media you like or anything. No, I got it. I got it. Uh... I would put a giant focusing mirror in space and I would focus the sun down to a single point, the whole strength of the sun above the atmosphere down to a single point and just scorch the atmosphere straight off and then just burn everything like a space laser. Basically, I would do to the planet or to any given planet what we do to ants with a magnifying glass. Okay, Lex Luthor. Interesting. Lana, how about you? <laughs> so uh, I would make the, the planet dependent on fossil fuels for uh, much of its energy and materials <laughs> um, and gradually watch as their society destroyed itself. Okay, that's too real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> alternately, alternately protomolecule. So speaking of planetary annihilation, tonight we are covering one episode. Um, that is going to be... Season four, episode five, The Long Night. Indeed. Jude, take us away. Uh, tonight, as Justin said, we're talking about The Long Night, written by JMS and directed by John Lafia. I want you to imagine, for a moment, me rubbing my hands together with a greedy, slightly manic expression on your face. Got it? Good. Okay, now you know what you're in for with this episode. Uh, this is a personal favorite episode of mine. I make no apologies for the length or slightly uh, entertaining nature of this summary. So let's go. Uh, we open on Sheridan narrating his personal log, a thing I refuse to accept will ever actually happen, no matter how much Siri and Alexa continue to invade our personal spaces. First, no military would ever allow it. That has to be a, an egregious violation of all security standards. The same way with that, like shouting your password at the computer, like password peekaboo. Like oh, I can bounce a laser off a off a glass window now. You think that they can't do that in the future? Anyway, I'm just saying it's dumb. He opines that it's all coming down to the next few days, and it will either be the end of them or the start of a new age. 
Uh, this is extremely pretentious, but actually true, which is kind of Sheridan's whole thing. We find him in CNC staring into space when Ivanova comes to him with grim news. The shadows have deployed their planet killer, some kind of cloud that covers the surface of a planet. And when it's gone, the surface is completely barren. Ivanova seems weirdly more freaked out by this than a giant laser that blows up the planet. I got to be honest with you. I don't understand that. I feel like you can understand the laser versus the like, like unsettlingly organic cloud engulfing the planet and crawling along its surface is like. Yeah, I guess it could be like a bug thing, like a visceral yeah. bug reaction. That's and we get, we get an explanation for how the cloud thing works eventually. Yeah, yeah, we do. But it definitely seems like a bug thing at first. Yeah, it does. Later, she finds him in his office and they discuss the fleet. It's the biggest fleet anyone has ever seen. Allies and former enemies all gathered together. Ivanova is getting super hyped about this when John awkwardly sighs and proceeds to rain on her parade. He doesn't want her with the fleet, not right away. He wants her to go find all the first ones, which seems insane since no one knew they existed until like a few weeks ago. Okay, it was longer than that, but yeah. whatever. And it just seems like, you know... Go find every race that that has been a part of mythology for the li- for the life of the galaxy. Go find all of them in the next like fourteen hours. But she didn't finish the side quest. Yes, I, yeah, I get that. Listen, like you, you, like the game will tell you after this point you can't do any more quests. This is the end of the game. Do you wish to continue? And that's the point where you're like. First of all, I'm going to back out of here. I'm going to save. And then I'm going to go do some side quests after checking the wiki to see if doing those side quests will affect the like the end of the game. Yeah, or which, if taking too much time will affect the end of the game as well. Yeah, exactly. John says that Lorien, I can't, I can't pronounce it the way he does. It's stupid. Lorien will help her with them. and says Lorien, because you're worth it. <laughs> That's right. That's good. <laughs> Lorien, because you're worth it, will help her find them and says it's maybe their only hope to balance the scales. She gets pretty miffed about this and then tells an extremely dark story uh, about how her mother, one time while her father was away, her mother came down to the basement to watch her play with her dolls, then sent her next door and killed herself. And now she hates to be told to wait for someone to come back, as her mother had done, because she never, she's always let down when people do that. And she says, like, you motherfucker, don't leave me hanging. I want in on this fight. And she makes Sheridan swear one soldier to another that he won't sideline her in the fight. He swears and tells her, he swears and she's like, I've got just this tiny little bit of trust left for you that you will not do this, to, that you will not screw me on this one, Captain. And then he tells her what a good friend he considers her and how proud of her he is. His moment there at the end is actually a very tender moment. He delivers it with a lot of sentiment, uh, but there's also uh, a very clear underlying tone that this is a, uh, this is a goodbye. He's very clearly like saying goodbye to Ivanova in case things go sideways. Around the CPK table of impending apocalypse battle, Lanier has the latest details of the Shadow and Borlon movements. Garibaldi and Sheridan talk over Lanier as he tries to explain his findings. But before he can get a word in edgewise over the two white guys, a baby-faced ranger, Brian Cranston of all people, calls in with some new details. He looks about 12, approximately. (laughs) This is the youngest I've ever seen Brian Cranston, and I checked. He is still older than me. bizarre. It's so wild to see him... Because I don't know what year uh, that show where he wears nothing but his underwear half the time started, but he looked old enough to be like a dad on that show. And here he doesn't look old enough to buy beer at a 7-Eleven. I don't, I don't, it's wild. I think part of it is he's clean shaven. Yeah. He's, he's very clean cut and looks looking real good in that Ranger uniform. Very serious. He's put a probe on a planet being destroyed by the Shadow's planet killer so they can see what it's doing. Uh, the killer is a cloud that launches probes down into the core of the planet. The probes burrow down into the core, and then all of them at the same time nuke the core of the planet from the inside out, which causes volcanic explosions and tectonics and electromagnetic oh. pulses and 
the planet is is obliterated from the inside out. I don't think it would work like that, but it's cool anyway. Garibaldi, <laughs> this is maybe my, like, this is my favorite part of this whole episode that has nothing to do with Jakar. Uh, Garibaldi flat out panics like a five-year-old who missed the ice cream truck, which is a metaphor that doesn't work if you are not a parent of a five-year-old who missed the ice cream truck today and you had to go down to Dairy Queen and buy him ice cream because he like <laughs> could not chill the fuck out because he missed the ice cream truck. But that's Garibaldi. Garibaldi is a five-year-old who missed the ice cream truck and thinks the world is goddamn ending. Would he have preferred it to be a bug thing? No, I think he just like, I honestly think that Garibaldi is just like realized at this point that he can't hit anything in this with a nightstick. That like, this is the moment at which he, it, he realizes that he is no longer the man. He is now longer the oppressed minority in this relationship. And he is not comfortable with being on that side of the relationship. And he's losing his goddamn mind. And Lanier, cool as a goddamn cucumber in an upscale spa, just like slides in and tells him to just chill the fuck out, pop in a pacifier, little one, let the big kids talk, and explains how he's located where the Vorlon fleet is headed and how he's got this. He's already done all the math. Chill the fuck out. It's, it's a great moment because, like, Garibaldi and Sheridan are like, oh, my God, if only we knew where the Vorlons were going. And Lanier's like, bitch, please. Yeah, it's incredibly satisfying after watching the two of them just, like, mansplain all over Lanier. And then he just absolutely shuts Garibaldi down like a just just completely shuts him down and then drops a bunch of knowledge on the two of them. It's great. Sheridan tells his uh, team to summon all the leaders of their alliance to bring them to the conference room so that they can have a, a big meeting and tell them what's going on. Uh, Garibaldi very helpfully points out that it's going to terrify people. And he's like, I don't care. Having gathered all said leaders of the fa various factions into the CPK set of alliance, Sheridan arrives dramatically. I think he just like went upstairs like just and stood on the other side of the door while everybody arrived so he could make a dramatic entrance because that that feels very very Sheridan at this point uh with Delenn to do some speechifying the Vorlons are headed to a planet called Coriana 6 where there are 6 billion lives at stake that's a lot I guess I mean it feels like in the galaxy 6 billion lives on the grand scale of things is pretty pretty small bananas but I don't know uh he doesn't fuck around with a justification. He just starts giving orders. He doesn't. I was really expecting him to be like giving some sort of motivational speech, but he's just like, yeah, six billion lives. This is the point at which we got to kind of, you know, get involved. So you guys are going to go do this and you guys are going to go do that, which I actually found really refreshing. Yeah. Feels like Sheridan is just like completely out of fucks for this. He's like, I'm all out of charisma, guys. So we're just going to like. You're just going to go die now. We're, we're, I'm going to go start sending you off into desperate straits and hope for the best. So cheers. Then he reveals the second half of his crazy ass scheme. He's going to lure the shadows to Coriana 6-2 because he believes that there is a specific reason why the shadows and the Vorlons have not to this point engaged directly. And he wants to draw them into a massive apocalyptic battle and try and force some sort of a end to this drawn out conflict so that they can stop getting stepped on like little kids in a sandbox where two big kids are fighting. It's like Poirot getting everyone into the room for the denouement, right? Yeah. But first he has to get the shadows to Coriana. And this part's kind of rough and is a, actually a really good demonstration of how Babylon 5 can go from like a dumb sci-fi show to fuck you, I wasn't prepared to have emotions today. In like nothing, like the transition is you have no warning and it's completely seamless. But all of a sudden, uh, Sheridan gets on the horn, the video horn with uh, Babyface Cranston and tells him that we're going to set up a base at Coriana 6 and we're going to have our whole fleet there. And I'm sending you a file all about it. And Babyface Cranston is very serious. He's like, yes, sir. 
We're going to make sure the shadows don't get that file because that would really fuck up our day, wouldn't it, if the shadows got that file? And there's like awkward coughs all around the CPK set of Alliance. And he's like, mm, no, uh, yeah, actually, that's exactly what we want to happen because that's actually a ruse. We want the shadows to show up at Coriana 6. And this is the point about which Babyface Cranston like gets it uh, that Sheridan is sending him to die. Uh, that his ship has been ordered to fight as hard as it can, but not too hard, because they want this file to be captured by the shadows. And in spite of my levity in this description, the scene is legitimately heartbreaking. Cranston delivers it with a terrific amount of stiff upper lip, and Sheridan looks legitimately wounded to have to give this order. Because I, I think there's there's such a difference between like sending somebody into a desperate situation where they have a chance to make it out, even if it's incredibly slim, versus sending yeah. one, someone into a situation where it's like, you're going there and that's it. Yeah. I'm asking you to, to die. Not asking you to fight. I'm asking you to die. It's not mm-hmm. I'm asking you to be willing to die. I'm asking you to die. Yeah. Cranston... Bids Delenn farewell in Minbari, and that's it. He's ready. The final scene of the episode, Sheridan listens to Babyface's transmissions as they make their attack on the shadows and sacrifice themselves to lure the shadows into the final battle. And we end with another fucking voiceover log in which Sheridan narrates the ominous stakes of the next episode and recites a Tennyson poem that someone left for him on his desk on his first day as commander of Babylon 5, which perhaps, perhaps Zathras will be so kind as to put over this portion. When I took command of Babylon 5, I found a note on my desk. Someone had left it there for me. It was a poem by Tennyson. I still remember the last part of it. Though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, That which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Anyway, that's the end of that part of the episode. It's fine. Um, Considering the harrowing and portentous stakes, you would think that I would care more about it, but I don't. That part of the episode, as far as I'm concerned, is completely pointless. I don't care about it at all. There's another part of this episode, a B for better plot, in which Londo's, the 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 finale of the Centauri on Narn Emperor shenanigans plot happens, and it's a doozy. This is the fun part, so let's get into this part now. On Centauri Prime, Londo has acquired his own CPK table, the CPK table of assassination. And around it, he's gathered Veer and a few other sympathetic members of the court. I do want. To, I do want to raise a thing here. This is actually a much better table. It's a. It's a I, very nice I, table. I'm gonna say this is. This is not. This is not set in California Pieces Kitchen. This is like Olive Garden. Yeah. Mm. When you're here, you're co-conspirating. Mm, maybe I would say I don't know. If it's that nice. I would say it's more like a Chevy's. No, that's too far. You're going the other direction. It's maybe okay, a okay. Cheesecake Factory is maybe this. Cheesecake Factory is good. Yeah, it's Cheesecake good, Factory yeah. table of assassination. And around it, he's gathered Veer and a few other sympathetic members of court to discuss what must be done to save Homeworld. Uh, Londo is blamed for their situation, rightly. And he goes so far as to say that he knows he has a reckoning in the afterlife. But first comes the salvation of Homeworld. The others are waffling like a Belgian breakfast chef, but Veer, of all people, lays the backhand of truth on them and tells them that this is not debatable at this point. They have no choice left but to take the step that Londo has proposed. They have to kill the Emperor, and they have to do it in the next 17 hours, so there is time to get back to Homeworld and save their planet. And then there's a fucking clown! And let me tell you... (laughs) The cloud. I hate Centauri clowns absolutely as much as I hate humans, and maybe a little bit more. Emperor Clown Shoes, 
meanwhile, is in... I just want to say that, like, the way you said that, I hate Centauri clouds more than I hate humans. Like, you didn't say, like, human clowns, you just said humans. Yeah, I guess I did leave off the qualifying there, didn't I? <laughs> no, no, that, that's great. I mean, I stand by it, honestly. but uh, I absolutely hate this clown a lot. And I, I absolutely hate clowns in general even more. Clowns in, I mean, I just fucking hate clowns. And I hate this this clown an awful lot. Spe- I'm going to take a small digression. <laughs> a small digression. <laughs> a small, summary. a yeah. small digression mid-summary to say, I came across Dua Lipa's latest music video, which I'm going to summarize as sexy rodeo clowns ride invisible horses. And I cannot begin to describe how little I like this concept or how horrified I was for it to come up at random while I was working and listening to music on YouTube. And I look over and there's fucking sexy clowns gyrating orgasmically on my other monitor. <laughs> I didn't need that and I didn't want it. And I have no problem with that. The artist or the, or the, the, the song, but that music video is fucking cursed. And I encourage you to watch it. So you will be as cursed as I am by the knowledge of what it looks like when a bunch of L.A. dancers gyrate with fucking clown makeup on their face. <laughs> anyway, feel free to leave that in, Zathras. Um, I would hate to have to, you know, be mad at you because you took it out. In and any th- case, that clown is so jingly too. It has yeah. like has like all of the all of the foley every devices. seam, every seam on him is a goddamn bell, and he's like a living. So my son has a book called uh, what is it called? Jesus Christ! I need a new butt. About a kid whose oh. butt makes so many weird sounding farts, he becomes a one man Foley studio for Hollywood. I'm dead serious. And that's what this clown is. Like, he's going up to people and like poking them and doing stuff and all sorts of weird beeps and boops and blaps. He's like that guy from fucking Police Academy, like making all sorts of wacky noises everywhere. That guy, I'm sure he's a nice person, but he can go to hell too. Also, also the way that he jingles, it's like, it's like they're like training somebody for pickpocketing or something. Yeah, it's it's just bad. Uh, it's just bad. Emperor Clown Shoes, meanwhile, thinks this is fucking hilarious and that this sound effect spewing bell jingling monstrosity is the funniest thing he's ever fucking seen. Truly a psychopath of ever we've seen one. Right. While he's enjoying this, he calls Malari over and tells him that Following Jakar's execution that day, he's going to make Londo his high priest. The court notices that behind the Emperor's back, the clown is miming everything the Emperor does and falls silent as the Emperor clues in. They wait a moment to see whether the Emperor will be angry or laugh, but the Emperor laughs and so the court laughs too. As Londo leaves, the Emperor prances like a fucking looney tune with the clown. Londo goes to visit Jakar and discovers what Cartagia did to his eye. There, he relates Jakar's role in the plan. Jakar is to be executed that day, but first he will be paraded and humiliated before his people. Londo has arranged for his chains to be weakened. All Jakar needs to do is break his chains and distract the guards. Londo's conspiracy will do the rest. Jakar, meanwhile, who seems to have stepped into a new place of Narnian clarity and spiritual fuck you with the removal of his eye and he said narnian clarity does that involve like a lion who is i knew for the Jesus? second i said it i was walking into some fucking lion witch in the wardrobe <laughs> jokes from the peanut gallery here <laughs> i think Cartagia might might be a fan of turkish delight too so that tracks that sounds right he would turkish delight's disgusting and i i'm not taking questions on that subject i i've never had turkish delight before i think that if we um if we ever get like a hundred followers of the bad pot account i will we will order some so i can try that on the air it's it's not it's not good my friend it's yeah you're and and i'm somebody who likes rosewater flavor and other things for the record yeah it's rough anyway uh jakar tells londo that he has an empty heart and Londo, who has reached a weird, a weird like nihilistic Zen place in this episode, where he's just like, "Yes, absolutely true." Every time anybody insults him or blames him for something, is like, "Yep, got it." Sure. Are you with me? Yeah, like, good. are you following your place in this plan here? Jakar's like, just sort of like grunts in 
in the scent. And then Londo reminds him that no matter what, he must not touch the Emperor or else he cannot save Narn. Uh, nothing can happen to the Emperor by a Narn. Jakar nods again and Londo leaves him. He returns to court just in time to see the Emperor murder the clown. This happens off screen, but just barely. You see the clown's feet being dragged off. You hear like a horrible noise, like a really bad Foley noise, like something straight out of fucking Looney Tunes. And it, it, it jingles as the corpse is being pulled away. It's so right? funny. Yeah. It's so funny. It's very satisfying. Even, yeah, it's very satisfying. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. My favorite part of this, though, my favorite part of this is that the emperor, who is present for this, walks around the corner like wiping his hands on a on on like a, 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 a like a napkin or something gives londo the most crazy-eyed look and says humor is such a subjective thing with this totally like just stepped out of the asylum still haven't come off my meds crazy person smile and i'm not trying to be offensive i know that like there's a lot of tropes around mental health and a lot of unhealthy and unhelpful media depictions of, of crazy. And I'm saying that's what they've done with him. They have made him look like a stereotypical nutter butter in this scene. It's, it's bananas. Crazy is pants full of ferrets and he knows it. That's what I'm trying to get to with this, with this scene though, is it's like nobody makes that face. And doesn't know they're, cra they're, they're, you know, they've got one screw left in the whole goddamn building. Just one. The the only thing that would make the scene better is if he had tossed a napkin over his shoulder. Yes, absolutely. Hard agree. Could not, could not agree more. In his private chambers, uh, Londo waits for Veer, who finally arrives bearing a special package. A gaudy pen from the knickknack shop you buy your mom's Christmas gifts at every year that she will never use but will sit gathering dust in a mug on her desk. Oh, and it's got a needle in it that pops out when you push one of the baubles on it, which delivers a tiny dose of neurotoxin, small enough to not be detectable. So small, in fact, that it must be injected right in between the two hearts. The maker of this ornate piece of garbage apparently told Veer that it was almost instantaneous. Which leads to a spirited and sort of like, what's the word I want? Manic round of uh, humorous speculation between Veer and Londo as to exactly how much of Londo's name the Emperor could shout out before he died and what other things he might do before he dies. Uh, Veer takes it a little too far and things get grim for a moment before Londo says, it's time. Um, I quite like the scene. Um, the two of them joking about the Emperor dying and like, screaming londo's name it's it's ridiculous it feels it it has a big energy of like when you're about to go into one of those final exams where you've studied really really hard but you know you have no chance in hell of doing well at and nobody has a chance in hell of doing well at i never studied very hard for any of my exams so i don't really know what that's like but uh the second part sounds familiar i have a different energy it is the exact level of punchy that where you and your best friend have gotten done working a shift where you have been asked and you have been asked, air quotes, to do extra hours of overtime, you both leave. And as you're at a bar, like, down the street there, not because it's like, it's it, it's a good place, but because it's the cheapest and closest place near your work. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, yeah. How, it's got that same punchy energy of just like, I'm so tired and I just want this to end. And we're so close. Yes. Jakar is paraded out before the local Narns, who mutter fearfully and tearfully at the sight of Jakar. When he stumbles, they catch him and he tells them not to show fear. Be strong. Jesus, I mean, Jakar, is led before the Emperor, who declaims to the Narn witnesses, that's G apostrophe S-U-S, mind you, that pun's a lot. That pun is a lot more clever in text than in words. Mm -hmm. The emperor declaims to the Narn witnesses his benevolent wisdom, and then waves Londo over to tell him how he had the chains replaced because they looked weak, which they were. Which leads me to question: <laughs> How fucking dense were Londo's cronies here that they replaced these chains with some like? Were they like 
plastic play chains or something? Was this something out of like, Were did they, they like- replace the handcuffs with like the sex handcuffs that like obviously <laughs> look like they're weak enough that you can break out of them if you need to because somebody left you handcuffed to a bed and then like went out for coffee and you have to like break the handcuffs to get out because you don't really want to be there when they come back because the whole encounter was awkward. <laughs> or, or, or did they have like conspicuous file marks? Right? Like what about this? Did they blow so spectacularly that I'm, I'm running out of fucking euphemisms for crazy. Emperor Cartagia here is like, yeah, replace those chains. That's a an extremely astute and rational thing to do here. Even though a stopped clock, uh, a stopped clock will be right twice a day. He nails this one. He nails it. And it's like, how did you blow that? Here's my theory. I think that Cartagia's rope, like use rope skill is like, <laughs> that's the thing that he put a bunch of like skill points in character creation. So he just like, he knows bindings. That's all right. Or alternately, I uh, mean, I'm not going to kink shame. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say like, also, he's the dude who has like a private room full of severed heads, and like who knows what sort of what yeah, sort of I things mean, he gets up to in his free time. Fair enough. The emperor lists off all of Citizen Jakar's crimes and his punishment, which is death by vivisection, which is a pretty fucking ugly way to die. Honestly, it, this was yeah. you know exactly what Londo said it was going to be back. Yeah. Episodes ago, very graphically. Yeah. As the Emperor demands to know how he pleads, Jakar wraps his hands around the chains on either side of this long, weird, I don't know, like... It's, a, it's like a yoke, like... Yeah. Oh, just say it. it, it it's, a, it's, a, it's a yoke. It's a yoke, but it's like, it's, but it's specifically like a cross yoke. Yeah, it looks like a piece of a cross that he's been yoked to. be to. the Jesus metaphor. Uh, yeah, they're, the Jesus metaphor is very heavy in this scene. So he wraps his hands around these chains and the emperor sees him because he's doing it like right in front of him. And it's not like he's being subtle about it and mocks him. And he's like, you cannot break those chains. They are solid Corellium. Now, I don't know what the fuck Corellium is, except that it sounds like Corellia. And so I immediately thought that this was some weird like Star Wars element, uh, which would make oh, perfect well, sense. I know what it is because it, so so I can I can no prize. Oh, this. hit me. Uh, so so Corellium is obviously from Corellia, and because all Corellians are obsessed with, uh, like, reversing the odds, the uh, Corellian has an in- has a strength inverse to the relativity of how improbable it would be to break those chains at that exact moment. I'll buy it. <laughs> so, like, so if, like, if you have a chain of Corellian, Corellium or whatever, you can, like, it'll, it'll, like, it'll hold down, like, it, you can use it to, like, fasten anything. But as soon as it is holding a piano with a baby walking underneath it, that thing is going to break. So basically, it's Looney-Tunium. Got yes. it. All right. Well, uh, whatever this motherfuckium is, Jakar doesn't give a shit. Because to the shock of literally everyone in the room, Jakar breaks his motherfucking chains, snaps them, breaks out of his cross, and starts whooping motherfucking ass all over the throne room. Chaos breaks out, and wherever I am, chaos breaks out, because I habitually jump out of my chair and chair every time this scene plays. Uh, I love this scene so much, it's so fucking epic. Uh, Jakar just is, there's nothing not, like, mythic about this scene. This is like some some Hercules defeats the lion. It's so good. Jakar is so good in this scene where he just breaks these chains in the emperor. You can hear the emperor shitting his fancy short shorts in this scene. Um, even Londo looks fucking flabbergasted. He's like, he doesn't know he can't break those chains, so he's going to break those fucking chains. And sure enough, he does. Londo grabs the emperor and says, let's get the fuck out of here, yeah? And leads him through the weird curtains that decorate every room and right through them. I guess... Centauri rooms aren't really rooms. Like, they just build giant warehouses. That's what their buildings are and hang curtains everywhere. Like, a bunch of fucking hipsters living in a it's loft. It's because it's a temporary set that they just, you know. Yes, I get it. Thank you. <laughs> I, I understand. Ruining my dunk on hipsters. The emperor immediately begins to rant about having to have his entire personal guard killed for embarrassing him as Londo 
fumbles withdrawing the gaudy Murdermatic 9000 out of his inside jacket pocket, which seems like a dumb place to store it, given that it's right next to where it's supposed to go, and it's covered in, like, it's bedazzled, basically, and one of the bedazzles is a button that makes the blade stick out, so it seems like one stray bump and it... You're dead? It feels like that episode of Archer with the, with the like, murder pen. Yes, and exactly. And the hookers, which I think... That is exactly what it seems like. Which, now that I think about it, I think may describe multiple episodes of Archer. Yeah. He's fumbling with this thing, and somehow he's, he tells the Emperor to be quiet, I think. And the Emperor is like, the fuck you say? And decides immediately that Londo is no longer going to join him in Godhood. And backhands him. Just full on slaps the shit out of him and then puts him in a headlock like a teenage bully, which is poor timing. Uh, meanwhile, Veer, our precious, precious boy Veer, is in the crowd along with every, every, all the other Centauri who are watching these Narns beat the shit out of their guards, aroused and afraid at the same time, as everyone <laughs> is when they watch Jakar. Uh, and he slips through the curtains to see what's going on with, with Londo just in time to pick up the murder-matic, and as the Emperor shoves away Londo to return to the throne room, he runs right into Veer, who slides the murder-matic into his heart and kills him. His last words are, I was to be a god. Yeah, buddy. Whatever. Some guards approach, and Londo tells them to get a doctor, uh, but he's gone. Back in the throne room sometime later, presumably after Jakar has finished ass-whipping everything in sight and has gone about with his day, Londo and unnamed Centauri functionary number six tell the assembled members of the court the emperor is dead, and they all do a good job of looking bummed about it. Londo then pivots to a clever strategy. He says that the emperor was a man who respected the gods, and he says that this is a sign from the gods, now that two emperors have died dealing with the Narns. The others agree, and Londo immediately says, then we should get the fuck off of Narn and just wash our hands of them. We've beat the shit out of them. Their planet sucks now. Let's just be done. Let's just get the fuck out of here. Uh, they agree. So he says, okay, great. Now it's time to go home and like not have our planet blown up. I think we can all agree that's important. Again, everyone agrees. But in a surprise move, functionary number six nominates Londo to be prime minister as there is no time to, to get a new emperor or do anything else. They need to give somebody authority. So they give it to Londo. Londo shockingly looks horrified legitimately horrified at this turn of events as everybody unanimously agrees to to make Londo, to put Londo in charge here. Before they head home, Londo tracks down Veer and finds Veer fucking smashed. It's all fun and goofs as Veer stumbles about talking about how he's been drinking with the Emperor, drinking to the Emperor, and how he's... And drinking for the Emperor. And drinking for the Emperor and how drunk he is and... How the fact that his his liquor bottle has dicks on the top of it, which neither of you two seem to give a shit about, but I thought was fucking bizarre and hilarious. I did um, not notice that. It's it's just a little spout pour. It's not even a tentacle. No, it's just no, like, it's a little it's got branch off. Four tentacles on top. Four. I have seen those in bars before. It's got four tentacles on top. It's not a spout pour. They it is it is a decoration of dicks on top of the on top of this well, bottle of liquor. Then why is it four, Jude? I don't know why it's four. Maybe because they couldn't fit eight? I don't know. But there's a decoration of dicks on the top of this liquor bottle. Anyway, it gets serious when Veer begins to get a little upset. And he asks, how much more do I, He's referring to how much more he needs to drink. How much more before I can look in the mirror and not see myself? Which is heartbreaking. And like, you get it. Uh, Veer is a big soft boy. And he's handling this about as badly as you would expect. And Londo handles this revelation with all the insensitivity that you would expect, at least initially. Um, he kind of tells him to, you know, get over it, but then sits Veer down and opens up a little bit and tells him that you're a good person. And the reason you hurt is you're a good person. And I've always envied that about you and so on and so forth. And he actually manages to comfort Veer a little bit, I think. And the scene ends with the two of them, uh, with Veer at least, looking out the window, watching the fireworks that the Narns are setting off, having discovered 
that the Centauri are leaving their planet. And Londo says that I'm going to keep my promise to leave Jakar his planet because it's all I've honor is all I've got left. And then he tells Veer that he still needs them as there's much work to be done at home. <sighs> Deep breath, almost done. Following the departure of the Centauri, a bunch of Narn are trashing the throne room when Jakar wanders in. He observes their behavior for a moment and then begins to lecture them. One of them, Jalorn, treats Jakar like a wounded idiot, but then tells him that when he's well, they will make him their leader for a campaign of revenge against the Centauri. Jakar adamantly refuses, first of all, telling him that you're being stupid, uh, and then second, saying that he will return to the Kari if they are restored, but no more. Jalorn, again, an idiot, says they have learned the strength of an emperor from the Centauri, which is so transparently fucking stupid that I legitimately cannot believe somebody wrote that line. It's unfathomable to me that any creature would be dumb enough to utter that sentence in that context. And then I look outside and see the people walking around without masks on in my very red county. And I realize that maybe I'm uh, overestimating how dumb people can be while still walking and breathing at the same time. And maybe I should give Jalorn a break and JMS a break too. Anyway, Jakar seems to agree as his response is bellowed indignation that the Centauri are a lost people and that they deserve nothing more than pity. Jalorn calls him a coward, which is fucking and just mind-boggling, and asks, what have you endured while we suffered during the occupation? Cementing his role as the absolute stupidest Narn in the run of the show, bar none. As, as Jakar's eye socket, like, Oozes. Yeah. Jakar's missing one eye is covered in wounds and has literally given everything to his people. And this guy, the picture of Narn health, is sitting here cavorting about the throne room, breaking stuff. Is like, what have you lost? Fuck off. Uh, Jakar simply laughs, is like, does that thing where you just like, you can't form actual words. So you just repeat the last thing you you heard and then laugh because your your brain's caught in like a feedback loop of stupid. Uh, he wanders off and that's the end of that part of the episode. Um, I could not love Jakar in this episode more. Uh, I don't even, I mean, we can talk about the rest of it, but the only part of it that as far as I'm concerned matters is how fucking epic Jakar is in this episode. Uh, breaking unbreakable chains as he is paraded before his conquerors is such a fucking mythic moment for him, in the, especially in the context of his whole arc. And then flat out rejecting the call to be a warrior, the call to be a leader, and saying, nope, done with that. I entirely rejecting the premise that motivated him the first season, two seasons, and instead saying, expressing empathy for the Centauri and simply saying, we need to heal our people, becoming a healer and a different kind of leader. Just after he has literally broken unbreakable chains, the metaphor has literally become physical in that scene I can't. It's just too good. Jakar's too good. I agree. He's so good in this episode. I love Jakar's quote here as well, that he didn't you know, work to remove a dictator from their world, only to- Become one. Have, yeah. Yeah. Have everybody, you know, set him up on that throne. Yeah. It's terrific. It seems not pointless. There's always a reason to praise Katsalus in this show, but it seems obvious maybe is more the way to put it to talk about how good he is because he puts so much desperate pleading fury into his voice in those scenes where he's just like, please God, will you fucking listen to me? Like he's, he, he's just barely holding on. He's exhausted. And you can hear that he, he, he puts just the right amount of like, 
exhaustion and like desperation into trying to get them to like hear him. It's great. I, I think it's such a nuanced tone that he uses there, trying to c- convey ex- everything that Jakar has been through. It's so good. My other favorite thing with the, that particular scene as well is, you know, as Jakar, you know, has empathy for the Centauri and says that they're a dying race. That mirrors something that Kosh said back in season. It was at the what at the start of season one, right? That he was. Kosh is talking about the conflict between the Narn and the Centauri and says, you know, they are dying people. They should be pitied. Yeah. Or something along those lines. And uh, Sinclair, who asks, which one, the Narn or the Centauri? And Kosh says, yes. Yeah. And I think Kosh didn't didn't foresee the rise of Jakar and Jakar becoming this person and this type of leader for Dinarn, that the Centauri are still on their path to be a dying race, but I think at this point the Narn are headed somewhere else. Yeah, hopefully. It's a it's a nice callback. Yeah, it is. Something that I that I personally love about this. So I have I have a theory about the Tennyson poem, is that it was not Sinclair who left the Tennyson poem for uh Sheridan. Okay. There's only one person on the show who quotes British poetry. Mark. Jakar. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that, that's my theory. That's like that's like I have the only basis for it uh-huh. I have is that like is that like uh, no because he's got the Jakar quotes yeah, Elliot. He's got that Elliot poem. Yeah, that's oh I like that. Yeah, and Jakar I, would do that too. Jakar would leave I a could, fucking. I can see either of them. Yeah, but we do know that Sinclair was a huge Tennyson fan, so. I could see it going either way. Like, yeah. Yeah. You, assuming that it was Sinclair, which you know, you bring up a good point that it could have been Jakar. I would have actually loved it if they could have like had O'Hare contracted for just like one mm-hmm. voice acting line and done a fade and like a fade from voice to voice on that or something along those lines. I think that that would have worked really well. Yeah. I think it might be something that's a little hard, like, unless you're, like, going to physically show his face, I think, like, just from a TV perspective, I think, like, dropping in an unfamiliar voice just in, like, the last part of an episode's a little, it's a little bit of an ask, especially because it's, like, you know, it's been, like, it's been, like, six months since Sinclair was last on screen. Yeah. It's, it's just like me. It's, like, like, from a logistic standpoint, I get why they did it. Because it's been, it'd probably be like a little yeah. weird. No, I yeah, I get what you're saying. I think uh, for us, nerpy analyst brain people, like we we would get that reference right away and we would understand what it was saying. But because they didn't show the poem in advance, it would be like, why are they having Sinclair read that? That makes no sense. It wouldn't, like a casual fan yeah. might not necessarily connect the idea that it was Sinclair who left it. I think it's something where it would maybe work in, a modern TV show mm. that is meant to be binged. Yeah. Um, or where the creators are expecting people to, you know, obsess over details. Yeah. And to like go back and be like, oh, you know, there's a different voice there. Who was it? Oh, right. It was Sinclair. Like with the benefit of being able to, you know, go back to the loading screen and go back three episodes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But totally. Um, certainly in the era of like waiting for things to show up on the air on a schedule. Yeah. So I just looked this up. So Brian Cranston, we, we were talking about how much of a baby he looks like in this episode. Brian Cranston was older than I currently am when this episode was filmed. Okay. Either, either he's very, he's a very, he had a very gentle youth to that point or you've done some hard living but <laughs> i don't think i've particularly done some hard living i like i do have like some dad i i have had some very dad energy for i'm just saying nothing against you i'm just saying but, he looks very baby face in this episode in everything that we know for the modern day he is either like an actual dad or or he is like scruffy yeah. no i get that i get that i'm he must just have a really good moisturizer at that point yes I think that also helps. I bet the Rangers are very big on skin health. 
no, the Minbari wouldn't have like good. Oh no, they routines. wouldn't because they just because they just lie in bed and are just like we sweat out all we sweat out all our. Yeah, dirt. that's right. They don't. Oh, interesting. <laughs> they don't. Shower maybe that's because maybe that's actually more healthy than we're giving them credit for. I don't know. I mean, we do we we do arguably as a culture uh, bathe too frequently. I've heard that. If I can change the subject very slightly. Uh, I want to dunk on the uh, gaudy murder device that... Oh, I love it. It's so Centauri. Yes, it's very Centauri, but I have like three specific complaints. First, it comes in a box that is covered in reflective... It's it's like a reflective rainbow box. It looks like something you would strap to the back of your bike so that drivers going by would see you. Why you would put an assassination tool inside the box like this? It's camouflage. Yeah, it's camouflage. It's active camouflage. Because everything in Centauri Prime is like that, or like everything that the Centauri do is like that. So something, you know, something that's like wrapped in gaudy iridescent paper is not. Nobody's going to blink yeah. an eye about that. That's just like uh, you know. Oh yeah, Londa just you know you- got an you know got a new dildo or something. Yeah. Jude, what are you gonna like? I'm gonna I'm gonna like pose a question to you here okay. as like a perfect as as somebody who's like professionally paranoid. <laughs> Which one do you think is a bomb? Something that is wrapped in like gift wrap paper that has like I don't know like reindeer on it, or a a box that is wrapped in like brown butcher block paper <laughs> tied off with a string. Probably the latter. Exactly. So you yeah. get, you you give it something that makes it look normal. Well, fair. Yeah, people people been, aren't going to pay. Like like imagine it had been in like a matte black assassin box with a slightly darker black string. Yeah, or something like mm-hmm. that. Like you know, <laughs> no, that's fair. The, I, I the other centaur, you're going to be like, wow, Londo, nice nice murder box. I like that we were that like the specific Archer reference we got in this episode was slightly darker black. <laughs> I'll grant that one. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. My other problem with this is it's the ugliest prop we've ever had. Oh, I love the foley so on it though. I love I don't, it. It's like it legitimately. I'm 99% certain that I have seen that exact thing on pen websites. Cause I yeah I collect fountain pens. Oh, Shut sure. up! I've seen that. I've seen that. <laughs> this doesn't surprise me. On pen websites of like the ugliest pen you've ever seen. Cause it's like it's absolutely like a pen body that has been like bedazzled with <laughs> little like lumpy colored like not even not crystals like stones. I can't. It's the same as the eye, right? It's the, they did the same oh, technique yeah, as the no, eye. Yeah, no, I take it back. The eye is way worse. So second worst prop we've ever seen. And both of them are Centauri trinkets. The whole Centauri aesthetic is just tacky, which is so good. Okay, the Centauri are like, yo, me and my partner spied your vibes from across the room, and they are fucking rancid. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking, speaking of awful props, can I just say that that portrait of Cartagia is just it's just so bad yeah like what the fuck is going on with Centauri art styles and like their ability to render faces in a way that doesn't look like terrifying like we've seen portraits of Londo that have been in same style and like that I could explain by like Londo being in a rush and having limited budget but this is the fucking emperor like why is it not a nice oil yeah why is it like look like you know somebody's like high school student kid did because that's probably who did it (laughs) because it was probably like Uh, the set designers uh intern i mean you get like you have artists who work like on a hollywood stage who make that stuff and it's just like it i think it's Okay, here's the thing that I'm going to say. I think that, like, art that is, like, not perfect and actually looks bad is, like, there's a certain verisimilitude of it in, like, set design of, like, stuff that doesn't look great but fits a theme. Yeah, and and this is why I've liked the art in that style for, like, the portraits of Londo that we've seen, where it's, like, 
gaudy and pop art and like it seems to like fit the sort of thing that Londo would end up with as a portrait but like this is the emperor and the emperor who's like obsessed with himself like yeah that I feel like I feel like he would want a really nice oil Mary has some thoughts on this subject so I want to talk about something for like it because I haven't mentioned on the show before and I sort of just like I want to talk about it now because we only get like one more episode of Royal on Shadow shit. So the Royal on Shadow War I'm just this is the this is the Justin bullshit tangent because Jude got some. Some? Everybody gets some. Um, you mean you mean the so, first 50 minutes of this episode? Yeah. <laughs> In the video game Stellaris, which is a Space 4X game by Paradox. If you if you like Civ but want it in space, it's like it's that sort of vibes. There are like the, the concept of the game is you make your own space empire and join the intergalactic community and fuck around and find out. Every time I've played this game, I have made uh a ripoff of a Babylon 5 species. One of my most recent games, I played the Centauri Republic, and um I I made a bunch of I I took the I took the trait so that you could crossbreed with other races. <laughs> and I just made a lot of half Centauri fuck babies. <laughs> um I it is it was true like I made them super decadent. It was disgusting. I sort of kinda love it. It was also kind of terrible. Um anywho, there is the, one of the features of the game are that they're like you're your civilization starts off with like an early jump drive and like has to research stuff like lasers and like how and like shields and like you have to like you start off very basic and you have to work your way up there are certain civilizations that spawn in the game that are called fallen empires which are empires that are super technologically advanced and like but are isolated they are non-active in the galactic community and they're they're cut off they close their borders they they have certain specific ethos that they follow but don't really do anything until the late game possibly where if certain triggers are met or if a certain role is met fallen empires will will start to become active and one of the things that can happen is if two fallen empires awaken they can create the war in heaven (laughs) <laughs> which is basically two fallen empires going to war with each other and they will drag other races into that war. So what you're telling me is the developers of this game were fans of Babylon 5. Yeah. Okay, so there's there's something that's even more important is that there is a third option. Which is that is that like one of the one of the like stronger non-fallen empires can choose to create their own faction. And do you know what it is? Do you know what it is by default? Like that faction? Lay it on me. It's the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I realize this was like a five-minute Shaggy Dog joke, but this is exactly what yeah. Uh, no, they yeah, <laughs> B five nerds on that team for sure. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Great, I love that. Yeah, I don't. Ha- I mean, like I said, I have nothing to say about the first part of this other than baby Cranston. Um, um I mean, the heart-to-heart between Sheridan and Ivanova is incredibly good. It's pretty good. Yeah, uh, I like it. Ivanova is, her story is so dark. It's, good lord, Ivanova. <laughs> just. <laughs> I just want good things to happen to her because every time we learn something about her past, I, I like, I'm like, oh, you poor child. <laughs> yeah, like, although I do like the part where, where Sheridan is like, you played with dolls? And like, before <laughs> you can even get it out, she's like, yes, I played with dolls. And she's like, what do you th- okay, that's a good question. What do you think Sheridan imagined the five year old Ivanova playing with? Knives. Um, <laughs> Fire. Like it, it's it's either knives. She was playing with IL two like IL like IL two plane models. Ah. Uh, see, I imagined <laughs> that he in my mind, he he he's picturing her as a five year old blindfolded blind stripping and reassembling a rifle <laughs> in the cold like in the snow I, I like just because it's like we know that like baby Ivanova was into neo-communism I could totally see her like pretending to be a Sturmovic pilot fighting the great patriotic war <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. See that. my vibe from this scene is always that Sheridan 
that this is one of the only times that Ivanova has talked about this, is my guess. Um, that's always the vibe that I get about it, is that she's so closed off. I feel like the act of telling Sheridan about this particular trauma from her past is like a huge deal for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is impossible for me to imagine like that formative of a thing as like a parent uh, committing suicide. It's it's like I like that. Ivanova is a deeply fucked up person. Yeah. Like I, I like when I say that I'm like I don't mean like is like like I, when I mean that I'm like she has a lot of trauma that she has never like I don't think she's ever able to deal with um, because frankly nobody sees a goddamn therapist on this show and <laughs> i think out of i think like out of everybody in the show like ivanova is the person who has some of the i mean has the most actively unhealthy coping mechanisms oh absolutely that's one of the things that's wildest to me about this show like if we wanted to change babylon 5 the most it would be send give like put a therapist like don't have a human ambassador. Put De- put Deanna Troy on the station. Put Ezra Dax on there. Or fine, whatever. I'm just saying. Yeah. Give them a therapist, and watch watch what happens. Like, can you imagine? Well, first, assuming that assuming that Ivanova didn't space the therapist within the first two episodes, <laughs> which is a legitimate risk. I feel like it would be. I mean, that would be a way to completely redirect the trajectory of the show. Ivanova with, like, healthy coping mechanisms. And, oh, and speaking of, like, things that telepaths could do that would be, like, actually really useful as good and useful, right? As opposed to, like, Like sitting around during trade negotiations and reading the minds of murderers. Do you know what would be a great addition of this to, to like, okay, oh, oh, I've got it, I've got it. We turned Talia Winters into Emma Frost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's she already has the look. Yeah, she does. And she has the name. Like she's she's halfway to the name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. All we need all we need is to her to have a rancid Boston accent. Um listeners, if you are only familiar with Emma Frost from like the X-Men First Class movie, know that anybody who tries to tell you that Emma Frost has a British accent is a liar, and she's from Boston. <laughs> Emma Frost. She's a Boston Brown. <laughs> um, Kirkoa runs on Duncan. That'd be amazing to use her telepaths on this show. It would be like you'd have them really well trained and like they would be amazing therapists, like, you know, with proper like consent and everything in place. Yeah, but this was also a show that was written in the 90s. And so like, and like nobody in the 90s knew how to write medical ethics into a show. And <laughs> therapeutic ethics are like... <laughs> the show doesn't even know anything about regular medical ethics, much less therapeutic medical ethics. Yeah, no, that's exactly I mean, what I'm the 90s, look, what did the 90s know about therapy? Fraser Crane, a man so, so egregiously lacking any mental health of his own and with... So little cognizance of what, like, actual mental health and mental health professionals did. Anyway, we don't need to get into <laughs> We don't need to turn this into a Dunk on Fraser podcast. We can do that, like, in three podcasts from now. <laughs> I do enjoy, like, just the total break moment of Veer, of Veer being the one to kill Cartagia. Yeah, and it's it's almost an because accident, right? Like he's just yeah. sort of like holding the pen there, like he's about to hand it to Londo, and Cartagena like fucking like falls on it, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Like it's an accident, but it's still murder, and it's just like it, it's it's a it's a like it's almost humorous how it happens, and I, yeah. I, it's yeah, fantastic. It's framed like a slapstick scene almost. Yeah, very much. Um, a lot of yeah. Veer in this episode is framed as like wildly swinging between like Veer the punchline and Veer the tragic. And that scene where Londa's like, you're drunk. And he's like, I was like, just going to say, Absapaza. Oh, oh, you bitcha. Stephen First, a very good comedic actor. Uh, you're really seeing Stephen First there more than Veer almost. That's very yeah. much uh, uh, his delivery of that line. He does it so well. Yeah. 
I, I do think that there's a very specific thing that I want to that I do want to say out of about like the the opening part with Ivanova and Sheridan. After Ivanova shares that like I have just enough trust left in me to believe you, which is which is a heartbreaking line. Sheridan makes sure to tell Ivanova that he's proud of her. Yeah, it is half corny, like when you hear it, but the fact that it is like honestly said in earnest. Like is what it's a dad like, line. It is corny, but it works. Yeah, it's it's share a dad. I feel like it also fits into the vibe that I always get between them, which is kind of like a you know sibling sort of vibe too. Yeah, I def I've always yeah I agree very much. Look, people ship a lot of weird stuff, and I'm not judging, but I have a lot of difficulty imagining shipping these two because their vibe is so strongly like fraternal. Yeah. Of their, like, the you know, their fellows, their comrades. And there's mm-hmm. never any, I mean, I don't know. There's a definite, like, structural difference in, like, their position. And, like, Sheridan is clearly, like, I don't want to say a mentor figure, but he's, like, he's definitely, it's, like, halfway between a mentor figure and a father, and a substitute father figure. Yeah, yeah. On the on the subject of shipping them, yeah, that that's a ship I absolutely cannot get behind. And I also love that reading through the various JMS speaks, whatever that has come up, JMS was like, "No, what the fuck is wrong with you?" Yeah, I think he's like, like, there's several times where he's just like, "Have you not seen two people interact positively before?" <laughs> yeah, I'm it's so just, sad for like, you. Yeah, it's funny, honestly. Yeah, he's like out there. Like, yes, absolutely, Ivanova and Talia, a thing that's happening. And then someone's like, Ivanova and Sheridan. He's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) I just love, I love that dichotomy where he's just like, you know, shipping the two women. Like for 1996, that's a kind of, that's a, that's a really like bold approach for the creator to be like, yes, absolutely the lesbians. But no, you want to ship the two, the, the two main characters that are male and female no get the fuck out of here <laughs> like for our, we haven't done hey that hey i know that face in a while but it's brian fucking cranston <laughs> um if you don't know where he is google him he's got i think he's got a a, 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 a like an armful of emmys at this point he's a tony he's also a tony award winner which, which really we stand yeah uh, he was a he earned, he earned a Tony Award in 2014 for his portrayal of Lyndon B. Johnson in the Broadway play All the Way. He also got another Tony Award for uh, he did they did a stage adaptation of Network. Dude's a four time Emmy winner uh, and two time Tony winner. So we we we, we I dang. bet you he is um, the most awarded person that's ever been on Babylon Five. Possibly. I don't know. That'd be a fun, that'd be a fun project for like a Saturday afternoon where I have nothing better to do with my nah, life. I can I can uh, I can script that in two hours. So, um, we are we we are um through the long night, and next time we're only going to be covering one episode as well. Join us next time for episode six of season four, Into the Fire. Until next time, be seeing you. <laughs> The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.